0: A local teacher is found strangled and stabbed in his home in Charlottetown, PEI, on the morning of November 12th, 1988. There was a sinister note left behind that chilled the community. This is episode one of Cold Canada, Island Homicide. One of the three maritime provinces, Prince Edward Island is a quaint picturesque province on the East Coast, known for Anne of Green Gables, Red Sand, and of course, PEI potatoes. It sits as the smallest of the Canadian provinces at only 225 kilometers long, and at its widest point, 65 kilometers across. The capital of Prince Edward Island, Charlottetown, is the most populated area of the island, with 49% of the residents living in its middle core. The island itself is a destination for many, with beautiful beaches and that getaway feel. It's the ideal place for tourists to visit in the summer months. According to Stats Canada, in 2018, PEI had the lowest crime severity index in the country. There's one thing still haunting the Charlottetown police services, the 1988 homicide of Byron Carr. As of this year, Carr's death remains unsolved despite new evidence, additional witness testimony, and the case being reopened several times over the past 32 years. 36-year-old Byron Carr was last seen in the early hours of Friday, November 11th, 1988, in his white 1987 Ford Tempo, near the corner of Richmond and Prince Street, talking to an unknown male on a bicycle. Carr was spotted pulling away and heading towards his home. The witness who saw the exchange before he pulled away advised that it looked like the cyclist was following his car. He was found dead in his home in the late morning of November 12, 1988. It was reported that Carr had engaged in a sexual encounter and was then strangled with a towel and later stabbed in the abdomen with a long-handled kitchen knife. It was revealed at autopsy that the stab wound was made post-mortem, In other words, after he was already dead. Police suspected they didn't just have one person to find, but a murderer and an accomplice. Iron was a school teacher from PEI with a secret that was revealed because of his murder. He was a gay man. Being a closeted homosexual on such a small island in the late 80s must have been really difficult for Carr, as it most definitely wasn't as widely accepted or celebrated as it is today. Police believe it's what got him killed and what hindered the investigation. They believe Byron was meeting up with another male for a sexual encounter on the night he was strangled. Once people in the province heard about this, a lot were apprehensive to get involved or to find his killer. Begs the question, if this happened today, would the outcome be the same or would his perpetrator be caught with more cohesive community? It's widely celebrated to be gay now. There's Pride Month. It's a lot easier to come out and want to help. Yes, there's still stigmas surrounding it, but it's a hell of a lot better than it was in 1988. Police were called to the scene on Saturday, November 12th, 1988, between 11 and 12 p.m. after Carr fails to show up at a family function. A family member goes to check on him and finds his back door wide open and his dog in his kennel. They found Byron deceased in his bedroom, along with a note on the wall. Scribbled in blue ink was the chilling warning message stating, I will kill again. Enforcement processed the crime scene and discovered Carr's wallet was missing. They recovered a pair of socks out of the kitchen garbage can and a pair of size medium Zeller's brand underwear. The underwear left behind is what tipped them off to car sexuality and was also a key piece of evidence. Police were able to lift DNA off the socks, and they were believed to have been worn by the murderer as to not leave any fingerprints behind. DNA was also taken from the underwear. The reason why police suspected that was a sexual encounter was because there was evidence of that Byron was a bigger male than the underwear would have suggested, so that was suggested that they weren't his. These were a size medium. The male would have had a 29 inch waist, so they were looking for a slim build male. Police were able to put together a timeline of events leading to and after Byron's suspicious death. I should mention that this timeline was not put together the year of Carr's murder, not even the year after. This final timeline was reported in 2018 by CBC. There were others published before it, but I'm going to go with the most recent one I could find. There may be some differences in the timelines, but I'm going to reference this one as it is the most recent. It all started on the evening of November 10th, 1988. That night, Carr was out for dinner with a friend in Charlottetown and arrived home around 9.30 p.m. He then had a few friends over for coffee. They stated he received a few phone calls during their visit and they left around 11.45 p.m. Between 12 a.m. and 2 a.m. on Saturday, November 11th, is when Byron's night really begins. He goes club hopping, starting at Pat, Rose, and Gray, and then to Bud's bar, and finally ending the evening at Gentleman Gyms, where he leaves with two friends of his. All these clubs have since closed. Carr and his friends go back to his house for a nightcap, and they leave around 2.45 a.m. Byron leaves his house again, this time to pick up a friend who was walking home and dropped him off at a boarding house on Sydney Street. The last time Byron was ever seen again was at 3.05 a.m. on Prince and Richmond Street, where he was spotted by someone who knew him, talking to the unidentified male on a bike. It was later reported that the spot was known for pickups by gay males. Nearly 31 hours go by before Carr's body was discovered. His boarder arrived home at around 9 a.m. that morning. He stated Byron's car was in the driveway assumed he was sleeping off a hangover, and left to go out of town for the long weekend, without checking on him. A friend of Byron then attempts to call him at 1 p.m., but there was no answer. Another friend drives by around 3.30 p.m. and and reports Byron's car was in the driveway. At 8 p.m. that evening, another friend drops by. Seeing his car in the driveway, he knocks at the door, but no one answers. Only 45 minutes later, a witness report seeing two suspicious men outside of Carr's home. It's believed that the killer and an accomplice came back to the scene to retrieve incriminating evidence to clean up and leave the note. Police believe this is when Byron was stabbed with the kitchen knife. They also theorized the note and stab wound were signs of frustration on the killer's part for not being able to retrieve the convicting evidence, the underwear, which was most likely the main reason they returned to the scene. This also is a little odd to me. I'm just wondering how these men knew that there would be nobody home at Byron's house at this time. Were they watching the home all day? Why did they pick this time to go? Sure, the sun would have been down, it would have been dark, but it's not super late at night and people are still milling out and about at that time. So I don't know, this seems a little suspicious to me for them to pick that time to go in and how would they know that he was going to be alone? Byron did live with somebody else. He had somebody renting from him. So how do they know that person was gone out of town? I just have that question. And since there was no signs of forced entry, when the police did go to the scene and process it, they assumed that the person who killed Carr was invited into the home. That's another reason why they think it was the male on the bike, as he brought him home for encounter and let him in the house. There was no signs of forced entry at all. Later that evening, around 11.30 p.m., police receive a call reporting a car stolen on Richmond Street. Police thought this may be in relation to the murder after the fact. At 2.30 a.m. on Saturday, November 12th, a neighbor reports a dog barking and a car taking off at an unusually high speed in the area. So just to paint the picture, on Byron Street, it's very quiet, it's a small little street. It's not a high traffic area. The cars are not going fast down there. It's of course a 50 kilometer zone, but driving through there, you wouldn't be going any more than 30 or 40 kilometers an hour. So to see a car go so fast on that street is unusual. Finally, at 11 a.m. the morning of Saturday, November 12th, 1988, Police are called to Byron's cottage-like home after a family member went over to check on Carr after he failed to show up for a family function, where they found the back door wide open and his dog in his crate. Byron's body is found in his bedroom. Police eventually did put together a profile of the killer. He was said to be a male between 15 and 25 years old, living a high risk lifestyle, probably living in Charlottetown, potentially in trouble with the law before for minor offenses and to be bisexual. The reason police believed he may be bisexual was due to the male and female DNA recovered from the underwear left at the seam. The man was also thought to be of slim build due to the style and size of the underwear. They also believe he was living in Charlottetown as Byron's host was fairly close to the downtown core. It wasn't until the case was reopened in 2007 after a formal review that some of this information came to light. Deputy Chief Brad McConnell reopened the case thinking people who were in the gay community who were reluctant to help in 1988 will come forward with information now and someone did. Now, just a note, there was no evidence that triggered this reopening. There hasn't been a review of the case since 1992 and they were just going through old cold cases to see what could be open and what potential each case had. This was one that he decided to open due to the more relaxed feel of the gay community, hoping somebody would come forward and they did. I myself attempted to reach out to DC McConnell, but didn't receive a reply before recording this episode. So after nearly 20 years, a man came forward admitting he picked up a young guy from the same area Carr did a few months after Byron's death and this guy turned out to be a monster. The man told the police once he got back to his place, this man that he took home grabbed a kitchen knife and threatened him with it, saying that he's done this before. The suspect then stole the man's wallet and bailed the scene. He stated that he was afraid to come forward back when it happened. This victim was put under hypnosis to obtain a composite sketch of the man who attempted to attack him. The sketch was then released to the public. Another witness also came forward in 2008 to say they saw Carr speaking to another male at 3 a.m. the night he was killed. Detectives were skeptical, but the witness agreed to a polygraph and passed. This person came forward over 20 years since it happened and said that he saw him that night at 3 a.m. This was the last person to see Byron alive. The fact that they waited so long to come forward definitely hindered the investigation back in 1988. It's great that they have information now in 2008 when they finally did come forward, but was it too late at this point? I found this odd. Why would someone wait 20 years to come forward to say they saw him that night? What were they doing that they didn't wanna be questioned at that point? Is it because they felt guilty because he was killed shortly after? There was no reasoning given on why this person waited so long to come forward with this important information. After all these years, police do believe they know who the accomplice was. After the suspected accomplice died, two separate witnesses came forward, one in 2008 and another in 2012. They did not know each other, they were not connected in any way, and they were both credible due to the information that was provided by each of them the information provided would have had to be heard from someone who was at the crime scene directly. One of the witnesses told police the accomplice confessed to them that he helped the killer clean up after Carr's murder. There was no direct physical evidence to this accomplice, but after interviewing loads of people who knew this person, it would be out of character to confess to something like this with such detail if he wasn't actually there and didn't participate. At the time of the murder, the suspected accomplice was a recent parolee and had a violent past. He was on the shortlist in 1988, but police couldn't convict him at the time with the lack of physical evidence. The suspected accomplice died in 2003. The accomplice was never named in the media. He was said to be 27 at the time and a close friend of the killer's to be trusted to help him clean up. The killer would now be 47 to 57 years old. He may be dead, but he may still be out there after all this time. He may be in jail. There's no real answers. It was also not published in the media on how the accomplice died. It was said that he died in 2003, which would put him in his early 40s. So it doesn't say if he died in jail, if he died from suicide. There was no mention of that either. So there's a lot of unanswered questions in this case. The DNA evidence from the crime scene was still being ran in the national database without any matches. It has since deteriorated to the point of not being able to test with new technology. There are still hundreds of suspects. The DNA was even running against people in the US and UK with no successful matches. Due to the town being such a popular tourist area, even though it was out of the tourist season, it was suspected this person didn't even live in Canada anymore, didn't even live in PEI anymore. So that's why they were running it against people from the US and UK. The latest update is from two years ago. In July of 2018, nearly 30 years after the murder, police were contacted by a man twice from a payphone in Charlottetown. He left a couple of urgent messages without a name or phone number. but that, it was about Byron Carr's murder. Police were unable to track down the man and he never called back. In October of the same year, McConnell attempted to reach out to the caller via the media, encouraging him to call back with the information he wanted to share. As of today, the caller still hasn't contacted police. He was never identified and the case remains unsolved. This was a tragedy for Byron's family and still affects them to this day, nearly 32 years later. I reached out to Byron Carr's family, specifically his brother, Scott, who said he would like an arrest of the person or people involved to help with closure. He also added, quote, "'We didn't get closure of the case before our mother passed "'and would like to before our father, who is now 94, does.'" I do have a few questions that I really couldn't find any answers to. Why Byron? Was this whole thing planned? Was the attack a few months later with the other man the same person? If not, then why didn't he attack again? Why was this a one off? Was it some sort of accident? Were they doing some kind of role playing and it went too far and it was an accident and he tried to cover it up by making it look like a murder? These are the questions I have that I could not find any answers to. It's just really odd to me that it's just a one-off, I'm gonna go kill this guy. I don't understand what the motive behind this was. If you have any information related to this case, please call the Charlottetown Police Services or PEI Crime Stoppers. All the contact info will be in the episode notes. This has been Cold Canada, episode one, Island Homicide. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go rate and review on iTunes. Also, follow me at Cold Canada Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, I'm Heather Curran, and this has been Cold Canada.